Well, good morning to all of you, and uh, it is a real pleasure to be here and to open in God's Word. Uh, I first want to begin by saying thank you to all of you here at Christ Church East for uh, welcoming Susan and me as uh, members of the church and providing a wonderful place of transition as we moved to Jacksonville last summer and entered a new chapter in our lives. Uh, I must say, after 36 years of ministry, I've had to get used to no longer being a pastor. Uh, I have to get used to the fact that I no longer know everybody around me as uh, when we gather for worship and I'm working on getting to know more of you. Uh, but I do enjoy getting to sit next to my wife during the worship service, and that's, that's a good thing. Though now since we drive to church together, we've had to adjust to getting here on time. Uh, but early on in our worship, we had a congregational responsive reading with the words of the leader projected and the words of the congregation. And at one point, I happened to read out loud the words of the leader. And my wife nudged me and whispered, Hun, you're not the leader anymore. <laughs> and I've accepted that reality, and I'm thankful for the good and godly leaders we have here at Christ Church East. Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, that's our psalm for this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles, and if you would, uh, I invite you to stand as I read this passage of Scripture. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would uh, use your word by your spirit to convict us, to encourage us, to strengthen us by your grace. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, your anointed king. Amen. at the beginning that, that shows how the various songs are arranged according to various themes. Uh, now, this summer, we as a church have been doing a series of sermons from various psalms. The, the psalms are the sacred songs of Israel. 
Israel, you may not realize that the Psalms actually comprise a book, like a hymnal. Now, the book of Psalms, or the Psalter as we call it, is actually comprised of five books. And these are clearly set out in our English translations. The Psalms are arranged in five sections. Psalms 1 to 41, Psalms 42 to 72, Psalms 73 to 89, Psalms 90 to 106, and Psalms 107 to 150. You can check that out for yourself sometime. Each book ends with a doxology. Hallelujah. Praise to the Lord forever. Amen and amen, or something very much like that. And the closing psalms, Psalm 146 to 150, are filled with these hallelujahs, and they serve as a final culminating chorus of praise for the whole collection. Now, the significance of this uh, division of the psalms into five books is much debated. But lighting through the headings of the psalms, with their references to particular historical events and to particular people, we can detect a broad pattern. Books 1 and 2 focus on David and his struggle to establish his kingdom. Books 3 and 4 reflect the troubles and questions Israel faced during the exile in Babylon. And Book 5 looks forward to a time after the exile. But this is just a general picture, and lots of psalms don't seem to fit into this pattern at all. But from early days, it's been observed that the first two psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, belong together, and they stand apart from the psalms that follow. Among other connections, they appear without headings, which is unusual here. And Psalm 1 begins where Psalm 2 ends, with a blessing, which provides, in a sense, bookends that hold these two together. Many believe that they provide a kind of introduction, a divine preface to the entire collection of the Psalms. They've been compared to the two magnificent bronze pillars that the Lord told Solomon to construct to stand at the entrance of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, these, these pillars were even given names. The ones in the south was named Jachin and the ones in the north, Boaz. And with these pillars, the divine architect no doubt wanted to impress the worshippers with the majesty of the sacred temple and to prepare them as they entered into his presence. Well, Psalms wanted to function like those two pillars. They stand at the entrance of the Psalter. They introduce the reader to the great themes they're about to explore as they enter into these sacred writings. So these two psalms set forth the basic premises upon which the whole Psalter is built. You could say that all the prayers of the psalms are based on the two central promises found in Psalms 1 and 2. The first of these promises is found in the first psalm, which uh, Pastor Matt preached on uh, way back in May when we began this series. The promise of Psalm 1 is simply this. God blesses the righteous and he condemns the wicked. That's all one. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. All that he does prospers. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, this, this psalm affirms that the God of the Bible is a moral God, and he deals with us as moral creatures. Therefore, he blesses the righteous, and he condemns the 
the most important thing about you is not your accomplishments in your career or in school, or your status in the community, or even your relationship within your family. The most important thing about you is your moral life, your character as a person before God. Psalm 1 declares that the good life is a godly life. It affirms a fundamental promise on which to base all our choices. God blesses the righteous, and he condemns the wicked. Now this is foundational for our relationship with God. As we read in Hebrews, without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So Psalm 1 sets for this fundamental article of faith, and we must hold firm to this conviction, that God rewards, God blesses those who earnestly seek him, for there will be times in life when what we see and what we experience will call this truth into question. And we see that very questioning quite often in the Psalms themselves. The righteous don't always get their reward, not in this life, and that can be hard to understand. But if this truth is denied, if God is not good, and if his ways are not good for us, why then we are lost at sea, without a North Star to guide us. We have no objective standard by which to assess how we're meant to live. We've become captive to our own desires and nothing more. And our whole society devolves into a chaotic struggle for power with every person doing what is right in their own eyes. So Solomon declares that the blessing of God falls on those who delight in his law, who walk in the wisdom of his ways, whatever they do prosper. And that promise is found throughout the psalm. Well, we now turn to Psalm 2. And here we move from a theme of wisdom to one of authority. The Lord is presented here as a great king. He is, as in verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven. God is king. He reigns in righteousness over all his creation. The Lord rules over all. He's the sovereign creator and sustainer of the cosmos. And his kingship is affirmed throughout the psalm. Psalm 10, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Psalm 47, the Lord most high is awesome, the great king over all the earth. Psalm 145, I will exalt you, my God, the king. I will praise your name forever and ever. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. God reigns. He reigns from his throne in heaven, but in the story of the Bible, God's reign on earth is represented by his anointed king in Israel. You see, the Lord made a covenant with King David. The kingship of God was closely identified with David and his offspring, the earthly king reigning in Jerusalem. The Davidic king was God's anointed, his Mashiach, his Messiah. Now, it seems to follow naturally that the entire cosmos should be included in the scope of the kingdom of God. But the other thing is, it isn't. Now, the kingdom of God is not coextensive with this world. 
God rules, he reigns, but God's kingdom is experienced on earth only where that rule is accepted and obeyed. And whereas Psalm 1 observes that, assumes that some people will not submit to God, referred to as the wicked, the sinners, the mockers, now in Psalm 2 that category is broadened and expanded. Look at Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, Israel's role, and the role of King David in particular, was to extend the rule of God over the whole earth. But our song declares that the nations, represented by the kings and the rulers, they are in rebellion against the Lord. They're stirred up. They're enraged at the divine king and his earthly representative. They conspire together and form an unholy alliance against him. Instead of trusting in his goodness and his wisdom, Oh, they see the rule of God as an oppressive captivity. Nothing but chains and shackles to be broken and cast off. The nations in rebellion. Now, this is a difficult picture. It's, it's characteristic of all fallen humanity. But the truth is that we too, by nature and by choice, we too are a part of that rebellion against the righteous rule of What folly it is, this rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. Why, the psalmist asked, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? I mean, why would anyone resist God's good rule? I mean, this, this is the ultimate mystery of evil. Do you think opposing God will result in your flourishing? Do you really think that your rebellion can be successful? No. The people plot in vain, we read. This rebellion is empty, it's worthless, it's fruitless, it cannot succeed. Human sin is like that, isn't it? It's always sinful. It's always foolish. It may be pleasurable for a moment, but in the end, it only leads to heartache and loneliness. For sin ultimately separates us. It separates us from one another, and it separates us from the God who created us, the God who knows how we were designed to live and to function. The whole culture abandoned the ways of God to their own ruin. And in our own nation, don't we see this? The social chaos that results when we abandon the ways that God has ordained. I, I think of marriage, for example. Uh, it says in the traditional marriage service, that marriage was ordained by God for the welfare of human society, which can be strong and happy only when the marriage bond between a man and a woman is held in honor. And the truth is, marriage is no longer held in honor among us. Now, we as a society are, are reaping the awful consequences of that rejection. 40% of births in America now occur outside of marriage. And that have all sorts of negative implications for those children. Now, rebellion against God in any form is always and nothing but madness. But this is what the nations and the people have done. And by having this psalm follow Psalm 1, 
readers to believe that any notion that living a godly life will always be smooth sailing, a walk in the park, no, there will be those who oppose God and his anointed king, and that opposition will surely affect us as believers. In fact, that opposition is a major theme in the Psalms. The word enemy or enemies occurs almost 100 times in this book. In Psalm 17, David prays for deliverance from the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. That beloved Psalm, Psalm 23, refers to the good shepherd who prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Psalm 25, 19, David says, See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. And I could go on and on. Enemies pop up everywhere in the Psalms. It's almost like you're playing Call of Duty on Xbox. Now sometimes David prays for deliverance from his enemies. Sometimes he praises God for that deliverance. But it is clear that David the king, that man after God's own heart, he encounters opposition. In fact, that opposition finds its most heartbreaking form in the very next psalm, Psalm 3, with its heading, which says, A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. And this refers, of course, to that coup in which Absalom tries to take the throne away from his own father. Yes, the Lord and his anointed king will be opposed. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. But though Psalm 2 declares that God's people will be opposed, it also promises that God's purposes will prevail. Look at this. How does, how does the Lord respond to these plots of the nation, to these rebels against his authority? Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He laughs. And that great rebellion of the nations, it's a joke to him. Do they actually think that he can succeed against me? Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles, they say. But the Lord scoffs at them, we read. Who do they think they are, these petty potentates? They're nothing. Nothing compared to the creator of the universe, the one who set the stars in place. There is no question about who will have the last word. I'm reminded of the time in the 1980s when President Ronald Reagan sent the U.S. Marines to invade the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada. Really? Is that a fair fight? No. No. We see the same theme in Psalm 37. The wicked fought against the righteous and gnashed their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Their day is coming. Martin Luther King once said that the arc of history bends towards justice. I don't know that it bends that way, but I do know that it ends that way. The Lord God will see that it does. We don't know when that day will be, but God does, and we must believe that it will come. For the Lord knows their day is coming. The Lord laughs at these rebels, but their rebellion is no laughing matter. Psalm 2, verse 7, the Lord rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. These are the ultimate realities. 
And the Lord says in verse 6, I, and the word in Hebrew is emphatic here, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And this to say, and what are you going to do about it? You see, the Lord had made a covenant promise with King David after David had declared his desire to build a house as a temple for the Lord. The Lord turned the table and said he would make a house that is a royal dynasty for David. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord said to David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. The Lord said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. See, this is the purpose of God. To install a human king to mediate his good and just rule among the nations, and nothing will be able to overcome it. Despite all opposition, God's purpose will prevail. And to think otherwise is just laughable. But that kind of promise has been picked up by the Davidic king himself in our song. He says in verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. I've become your father. And just as the Lord had called Israel his son back in the book of Exodus, so here that title of great honor is given to Israel's king who embodies the nation. And we can be sure that these words were spoken at the coronation of every new king in Israel. Ask me, the Lord says, to his anointed king, his Messiah. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, that iron scepter, that symbol of power and authority. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. God's anointed king will extend God's kingdom over all the earth. No one will be able to resist his rule. Justice will be established. Goodness will prevail over evil. God's anointed king, his messianic king, will rule over the nation. And isn't this the way it should be? Good prevailing over evil. Uh, I thought about this recently when I watched the conclusion of the Jack Ryan series on Netflix. Uh, Jack Ryan is the creation of novelist Tom Clancy. He's a heroic CIA operative who travels the globe battling the evil cabals who want to destroy America. In the process, Jack gets caught, he's tortured, but in the end, spoiler alert, Jack defeats the bad guys, they're either killed or arrested, and America is saved from catastrophe. Now, isn't that the way these stories are supposed to end? I mean, how do you feel if in the end Jack gets killed and a nuclear bomb blows up New York City? No, it can't end that way. For deep inside, we long for justice to prevail. We want Tom Cruise's impossible mission to succeed. So the good guys have to win. See, God has implanted that desire within our hearts. For he has promised that the story of human history will end just that way. Ask me, the Lord says to his anointed king, his Messiah, ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. All peoples will come under your 
God's Messiah, His good world will be established. Justice will prevail on earth as it is in heaven. Now this is a promise that the psalmist had to wrestle with some 400 years later. After the Babylonians conquered their land and took their divinic king into exile. I'm referring to this national tragedy. The psalmist in Psalm 89 addresses God, but you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. He then asks the question, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And again, O oh Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Now these are tough questions. And the Psalms are nothing if not honest about real human experience in this fallen world. It sure doesn't seem like the arc of history bends towards justice, does it? The Psalms ask the very questions we all ask at times. Is God really the king that he says he is? I mean, is he really good? Is he really for us? Will he be faithful to his promises? Can he be trusted? And in asking these very questions, the psalmist display a defiant faith. Well, I'm not afraid to wrestle with God, no. And it's a faith that ultimately recognizes the Lord God may have ways of fulfilling his promises that can be beyond our understanding. After all, the God's small enough for us to fully grasp, He's big enough to command our worship. Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 2 makes a promise concerning His anointed King. God's anointed King is assured of victory. God's Messiah will reign. And that is a promise that the Israelites struggle to hold on to and we will share in that same struggle. Our psalm ends with a word of warning. Verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. Celebrate his rule with trembling. See, God's rule is good. It should be celebrated as a cause of joy. But that joy must come with fear and trembling. It must include a due reverence for his honor and his glory. Then we read, kiss his son. That is, give God's anointed king your loyalty. Bow before him in humble submission. For he is God's representative. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. Well, this is a warning that comes to all. For as Jesus said, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And in the end, there will be no room in God's kingdom for those who refuse loyalty to God's anointed king. And the same warning that we saw at the end of Psalm 1 comes here too. All that is left for the wicked, for those who refuse to acknowledge God's wisdom and God's authority in their lives, all that is left for them is a way that leads to destruction. But our psalm ends where Psalm 1 began, with a word of blessing. Again, which serves to tie these two psalms together. Look at the final words of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God's anointed king, his Messiah. 
is a source of security, of peace, and of joy. Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. This is Psalm 2. And there's so much about this psalm that leads us into the great theme of the psalter. It alerts us, first of all, to the fact that the godly can expect opposition. God's blessing, the righteous, will not be without his trials and challenges. Enemies of God and his people abound in the world, and at times they will seem to triumph. The psalmists are often in deep despair as they look at their situation. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance, even as they express their faith in the promise that the Lord will be their refuge and their redeemer. Should we be surprised if the world opposes the people of God and that believers suffer as a result? This psalm also introduces us to the, the Lord's covenant commitment to his people and especially to his anointed divinity king. And we must read all the psalms with this in mind. You see, in these poetic prayers, these songs, David is not just dealing with his own personal spiritual life. No, David is God's anointed king, Israel's king. He's the representative of God and his people in the world, and his battles are not just his own individual struggles, for he represents his people, the nation Israel. A, a king represents his people in the same way that a sports team represents a city. I mean, all of Jacksonville celebrates when the Jaguars win. The fate of the people is linked to that of the king. His victory is their victory. His defeat is their defeat. And because of the rebellion of the nations against God's anointed Messiah, the Psalms declare that God's king, his anointed Messiah, will suffer. And you see, this is what Jesus recognized. When he read the Psalms. You see, the, the Psalms were Jesus' prayer book. He meditated on the Psalms. He prayed the Psalms. He sung the Psalms. And he saw himself in the words of the Psalmist. He knew himself to be that anointed king. He was born in Bethlehem of the line of David. His heavenly father spoke to him at his baptism by John. Words from this psalm anointing him as his messianic king. You are my son, the Lord says, whom I love, and you I am well pleased. Jesus used the words of Psalm 110 to confound his opponents by indirectly pointing to himself as, as King David's greater son, one rightly called Lord. Jesus uttered the opening words of Psalm 22 when he hung on the cross, My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? You see, the Jews read these songs and saw only words of triumph and victory for the Messiah. And they thought that when he came, he would destroy their Roman enemies. So Jesus' humble life as a carpenter's son, and his ministry as an itinerant preacher of the coming kingdom, and finally his death, his shameful death on a Roman cross, that made no sense to them. None at all. It didn't fit their narrative. It didn't conform to their conception of God's triumphant Messiah. And when he was crucified, even Jesus' closest followers were at a loss to grasp what God was up to here. But after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his followers and he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. 
Many of the first Christians could now read these psalms in the light of what God had accomplished in Jesus. These psalms point to Him. He is that true Son, crowned as King by His heavenly Father. He is the true representative of the people of God. He is King David's greater Son, the Lord. And like King David, he would be opposed, he would suffer, but he would be vindicated, enthroned as king, and his kingdom will never end. God's Messiah will reign. And this is the conviction that enabled those first Christians to courageously endure great persecution and boldly proclaim the gospel. So we need to believe this promise. We're to remain faithful. For the nations remain in rebellion against the Lord and His Messiah. It's been rightly said that ours is an age of anxious fear. Anxious fear. It's everywhere, isn't it? As columnist Michael Gerson put it, the economy seems to manufacture it. Rapid cultural change encourages it. The media amplifies it and monetizes it. Social media spreads it. Politicians feed it and send it into battle. But don't go there. As Christians, we don't need to buy into that cultural pressure, be slave of our anxieties and our fears. We serve a sovereign God who looks at the rebellion of his creation and he laughs. We can rest assured that whatever happens, his good purposes will prevail. His Messiah will attain a victory that the whole world will see, a victory that has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. But reading these songs through the lens of Jesus Christ changes our understanding of them in another way. How are we to think of all this language about enemies? The first century Jews expected the Messiah would overthrow their enemies, and they thought their great enemy was the political and military empire of Rome. But Jesus looked deeper than that. Now, Israel's real enemy was not the Romans. No, their real enemy was the power of sin and death. It was an enemy personally represented by Satan, the devil himself. He was the strong man who had to be bound if his possessions were to be plundered. It was he who deceived the nations and continued to do so. It is he who embodied the forces of evil that had come into the world and which had corrupted every human institution and every human heart. And that's the enemy we should now think of when we read these poems. So when the psalmists call upon the Lord to destroy their enemies, it is the devil and his demonic minions, and it is the power of sin and death which resides in our own hearts. That's what we should think of. Whereas Paul writes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Jesus taught us to love our human. For Jesus, you see, has come to bring a day of salvation. By destroying the work of the devil, by dying as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, Jesus came to offer a divine amnesty for God's human enemies. A day of forgiveness for all acts of our betrayal, a day of reconciliation with the divine king that we have so brazenly rebelled against. So we don't need Jack Ryan to save us. Jesus, 
our Messiah has come. As Paul proclaimed in the synagogue of the city of Antioch, he says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, Paul says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Everyone who believes. You see, that's how the Messiah's victory over the sin and death becomes ours. That's, that's how we can be set free from every sin. Yes, every sin is through faith, putting our trust in Him. As the last verse of our psalm declares, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And for now, you see, this is how the Lord is making the nations His inheritance at the ends of the earth His possession. Not through some military or political power play, so the kingdom of God will not arrive on Air Force One. I can assure you of that. No, for now the Lord is making the nations his inheritance through the simple proclamation of the gospel to the world. So that those from every tribe and tongue and from every people and nation may bow before God's king. And by believing in him they may enter into his glorious kingdom and be saved from his righteous judgment. And that's how the kingdom of God will expand in the world. And that's what Jesus instructed us to pray for and to work for. Well, this salvation, it's not something we achieve for ourselves. No, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. It's good news that this kingdom is God's gift to us. It comes to us by His grace. The Messiah's victory is your victory if you are a member of His you become a member of his people simply by pledging allegiance to him as your great king. And you won't. You won't. Because this offer of amnesty has an expiration date. But the fullness of Psalm 2 is still to come. When this anointed king, the Messiah, the Christ, will display his glorious splendor to all. That's what John declared in the book of Revelation. In a vision of the end of this age, I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God will be opposed, but God's Messiah will be victorious. And his resurrection is proof of it. And one day that victory will be complete. And when he comes in glory, it will be seen by all the world. Whose side will you be on then? The Psalms. You see, the Psalms bring us into the real world. 
It is a moral world in which God will reward the righteous and he will curse the wicked. And in the Psalms, we enter a world in which God's authoritative rule is rejected, but a world in which his good purposes will prevail. For the Lord laughs at the rebellious rulers of the nations, for he knows their day will come, for he has anointed his king on his holy mountain, and he will reign, he will reign forever and ever. And that king is Jesus. We tell you the good news. What God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And he now calls everyone everywhere to turn to him in faith. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, you are indeed the glorious King. You are the sovereign ruler of all things. You created this world and you sustain it by your word and power. And you have ordained an anointed Messiah to rule. And he has come. He has suffered for us. But he's been raised in power. He is now ascended to your right hand. And he will come again in glory. 